What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Today, I have Jeff Sell, Panda Racer's go-to guy for, well, just about everything, really. In this interview, we talk about how Panda Racer went from one of the earliest brands to create legit mountain bike tires, to leaping into the gravel bike category and owning it for quite some time before the rest of the industry caught up, and how they're trying to get back on the trails with some fresh designs, including how they develop those new mountain bike tread patterns. If you've ever wondered what goes into making a bike tire design and how frame and suspension designs play into that, along with a little bit of Panaracer's history, this is a great one. Please welcome Jeff Zell. Hey Jeff, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going great, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Excited to talk to you about Panaracer tires. I will share that my early recollections of Panaracer as a mountain biker, well, I guess used to be primarily mountain biker, were the smoke and dart tires. And I am a little embarrassed to admit or hesitant to admit to you that I actually preferred the Velociraptor combo at the time, you know, but we're talking many, many years ago. But it seemed to me like those were the two front and rear specific combos that were just kind of fighting head to head for everyone's attention, you know, in the, the heyday of the 90s. You know, you're right. And and I think that the Velociraptor showed an evolution of what the dart and the smoke started because the Velociraptor came after it and it was a very good tire. But it's clear that there are things that WTB liked about the smoke and dart that they incorporated into that tire that made it so successful. So unless you were really in on the beginning, which would go back at least for Panaracer, you know, to around the time of the mid 80s or so with the Timbuktu which is one of the most or the oldest, one of the oldest considered mountain bike specific type tires until the smoke and dark came along. And if you came in on the WTB phase, they did a great job of developing and furthering the mountain bike product at that time, especially in tires. So it's not a surprise that you liked it a little bit better because <laughs> it kind of did a little bit more all purpose than the smoke and dart specifically did. Yeah, my, my big recollection of that was that the knobs were just bigger. Like it was a similar kind of, you know, very front specific, rear specific profiles. And it just seemed like the WTB had bigger knobs of that. And now, of course, we look at modern tires, like what you guys are doing with the Romero and the Alizo. And it seems everyone's running much thicker knobs. And overall, is that just like, what was the progression in terms of design going from these fairly small knobs to, you know, what we see today? Well, I think that a lot of it had to do with the frame clearances and geometries at that time. And then, of course, the introduction of both uh, at first front and then full suspension that allowed the frames to morph into what it is that we see today in the different categories that allow for these wider, not only wider tires, but beefier knobs that do a little bit more. You put that in combination with how technology has advanced in tire manufacturing and you get to where we are today. That's it, at least in a nutshell. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, that brings up some interesting questions because I'm not sure how many people really think about like does suspension and then full suspension help dictate the tire design? Like what had to change as bikes got any travel? And then now where we have, you know, 120 to 140 millimeters is super common for many bikes. Well, there was a time that mountain biking, you know, was a leisure sport in most respects. And then that turned into a very competitive category. And then, of course, racing as UCI and other coordinators got involved with it. And what you saw was you went from these bikes that were being converted, like the Schwinn Excelsiors and other clunkers that we're all aware of if we're historic historians at all in the in the mountain bike phase, 
to where designers were actually taking some of the best elements of this bike and incorporating race type features that were needed, which were different head angles, different top tube lengths, different chain stay configurations, seat stay configurations that were all pointed towards speed. And these were also based on much narrower tires where 2.1 was considered to be a massive tire. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when we came out with the Smoke 2.2, people just about lost their minds, both in a good and a bad way. Some just couldn't wrap their heads around it at all, and others were like, I want even bigger. And this was because those people that wanted bigger were starting to see frame designs change when you look at what GT was doing with some of their first front suspension-oriented designs like the Zascar and bikes like that, and that small frame builders were doing, was that you were getting a completely different ride where the bike's angles had changed dramatically, where tires were now being considered a larger part of the whole riding experience and package, especially in addition to the suspension that was happening initially up front and then the full suspension that you saw in things like uh, the Alsop models. And you know, I'm going way back here, really dating myself. But these were the ancestors to what we're seeing in a lot of respects today. So as those frame clearances increased and larger tires were, be, were able to be uh, added, racing was not at the forefront like it was back in the early 90s into the mid 90s and people got back to just riding mountain bikes you know for fun and taking them all over trails it became really important to have that contact patch with the tire work more coherently with the bike itself and i think the frame and, and bike manufacturers and tire manufacturers started to pay a lot more attention to that yeah, you know, so it goes from suspension. Now my question is head angle, right? Like you had, I'm kind of probably making this up a little bit, but you know, like there was bikes that had like maybe a 70 degree-ish head angle. And then now we're down all the way out to like 63 in some extreme cases. You know, maybe the average for a good trail bike being somewhere in that, you know, 65 to 64 degree range. Does that dramatic? And then of course you have different trails and everything else, with the forks. How much of those angles and those measurements affect the tread pattern design? Well, it affects it in the sense that sometimes we feel that we need, as tire companies, need to design to what the bike's purpose is. And mountain biking is really split into so many segments that it's been difficult to keep up with it. And where I think that <laughs> the industry has settled for the most part with these newer angles and with these newer designs is that you basically have enduro or and or trail and kind of downhill-specific mountain bikes in the mountain bike categories. There are going to be people that disagree with me, but overall, in just a general sense, I think that that's really where it is. You're looking for the tire to almost do the same thing, but with different technologies. For example, at high speeds in a downhill-specific sense, you don't care about a tire weight. You want durability and you want the ability to have the tire ward off any type of punctures or cuts that it might get, as opposed to an enduro or trail type bike, where you might do a little bit of downhilling, but you're also doing a significant amount of uphilling. You're not having a truck take you uphill or getting any other type of assistance through a ski lift or anything like that. You're doing it yourself. So you need to have a tire that's somewhat of a jack of all trades, depending on your trail conditions, which have always been important, but even maybe more so now, depending on where it is that you ride. You're in North Carolina, I'm in Northern California. The riding conditions really don't meet very often at all between the two. Right. And so you're looking at things that are oftentimes going to get up over wet, you know, stumpy, rocky, rooty, you know, type trails where 
I won't say it's all fire roads, but single track is not the predominant way of riding out here. So you're looking at different types of tires to offer you different types of control. And I think you're choosing bikes unless you have an unlimited budget or something like that, that are going to do most of what it is that you need. And if you're fortunate, we all try to have, you know, decent amount of bikes in our stable. But, you know, by and large, you're riding one, maybe two different bikes, depending on where it is that you are. So the other thing that would come into play besides the frame geometry would be the proliferation of rims and wheels, especially over the last 10 or so years. But specifically in the last five years, aside from anything that you might find on eBay or whatever that comes directly out of a, out of a different country, but from brand names that you trust, there are a tremendous amount of good wheels out there with a, a wide variety of both inner and outer diameter widths. And this has probably become one of the biggest touch points in tire manufacturing, in mountain biking, and other disciplines to this day. We get the question all the time, you know, does this tire work on this rim? And we always have to go back to them if we don't know, because we can't know every particular model that's being made out there. What is the outer width? What is the inner width? What's the rim height? Hookless, non-hookless? All of these things come into play with tire manufacturing and how it relates to how the bike handles. So uh, it's become a much more detail-oriented, specific-oriented type uh, endeavor when people go to build bikes. And we're getting a lot of very intelligent questions from general public on this kind of thing. So one last question about kind of that along those lines, and we'll move on. The So like speed, right? Like obviously the people going downhill and then enduro when they're going down is much faster than what you know the average trail rider is doing. Do you have to adjust like the angles of the knobs and the way they sequence together? You know, because when you go into a lean, that's why the knobs are typically arranged in sort of a V pattern. So do you get like a broader or a deeper V based on what the anticipated average speed of that rider is going to be? Not necessarily the anticipated speed per se, but definitely in the conditions and and the overall use of the type of of category, like you say, enduro or downhill for speed, you want a tire that's going to transition well, that's going to give the rider confidence to really lean it into the turn, into the turns and into berms where they don't feel the tire is going to come apart on them and that they're going to be able to lean that tire over and still maintain that contact as much as possible. When you're trail riding, you're not putting the tire through as many extremes, so you don't need to take as much into consideration the extremes that the tire might go through. But the contact is still very important. So siping, knob spacing, knob height, and knob composition are all things that are much more important than ever in designing a tire for the uses that you want it to be uh, used in. All right. On. So let's talk about Panracer as a company for a second. Like you guys are manufactured, based in and manufacturing in Japan, which is sort of rare from what I understand. Like there's a lot of tire companies based in Taiwan and Thailand and, you know, some other areas, but uh, Japan itself, I mean, they're known for a lot of things, but I wouldn't have said, well, you know what? <laughs> I was going to say I wouldn't have said tires, but you have Yokohama, you have some other big cities that were built around tire brands. What's What's the bicycle tire industry there? Well, the bicycle tire industry there was once thriving, starting really from the 1960s through the 1990s to the early 2000s, when shifts in costs of manufacturing really changed. Without boring everybody to death, you know, manufacturers in every category, both in and outside the bike industry, are looking to find that magic 
combination of cost of manufacturing with quality of the product, right? And so as countries are developed, manufacturing costs usually go up because of things like cost of living and things like that. And Japan was no exception. After World War II, you know, America wanted to expand their presence in in Asia and in Japan, especially where, you know, they started a very strong alliance between the two countries. And Paneracer was started as the American rubber company, believe it or not, back in 1952. And I don't really, we don't really have any records for that other than it smacks of an American company coming in and wanting to utilize the Japanese workforce. Not in a negative way, but it was a way to get stuff manufactured. In the 60s, Panasonic, one of the premier Japanese companies in many fronts, especially known here in America for electronics, bought the company from American Rubber and started to really focus on bicycle tires as a main category and reached out to companies like Schwinn and others where they produced a tremendous amount of tires for Schwinn, Huffy and others through the 60s, 70s, and even you know through the mid-80s where they tended to focus then on high-end product because we saw manufacturing starting to go to other countries that were offering lower manufacturing costs. At that time, that would have been Taiwan. Now it's China and, like you said, Thailand, Vietnam. Everyone's always looking for places to manufacture things for less money. After that, during that time, there was Tioga, which was, which was produced by Mitsuboshi, which is no longer producing bike tires. There's IRC, which I still think continues to make a certain tire out of Japan, but most of their manufacturing is offshore. And I could be forgetting one, but there was Paneracer. And Paneracer is the last standing one, and we make about 91, 92% of our product out of Japan. And our customers tend to really appreciate that because Japanese still has the equivalence to quality and to first world manufacturing, where They've got it down. There's no real experimentation and the product reliability and the quality is is always going to be paramount for the customer. Right. So setting that aside for a moment, because, you know, I think any brand is going to tell you they have the highest quality standards, you know, any premium brand. But there's also, you know, really like from what I've seen and I've toured a lot of tire factories and talked to a lot of brands, kind of limited menu of ingredients that can be used in tire construction. You know, you have silica and graphene and you know of course natural rubber you know various grades of rubber and the other and then of course the casings are usually nylon or aramids but you know you you still have this set number of things that can go into a tire how do you differentiate like what makes a pan eraser special and do you have some secret ingredients that nobody knows about well let me answer the first part of that by saying that it's true that we all have access to essentially the same raw materials that said, I think that there are companies, Paneracer included, that do have access to certain things that other tire manufacturers may not, as we don't to what the other tire manufacturers may have. I think that it comes down to how you put together the tire for the specific use. And I don't think that this is any big industry secret either, because it goes along with what every, every other tire manufacturer says. But because we only make bicycle tires. Um, we don't do car tires. We don't do scooter tires. We don't do heavy machinery tires. We only focus on bicycle tires and for those specific categories, whether it be road or whether it be commuting, whether it be gravel, mountain biking, whatever the case may be, trying to find what's going to work best in the specific conditions that people use those types of tires in. 
again, this is, um, you know, not, no one's going to be shocked to hear this, but taking those ingredients and using our engineering ability, we have had some successes in areas that have not been seen by other companies and vice versa, or when we've tried to get into it, because you don't always know exactly what's going to stick. And I don't mean any pun intended with that, but just that. I hope with tires, you do know it's going to stick. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, true. But but you don't know exactly what's going to work. We all test our tires, both in-house, outside testing, whether it's machinery, wind tunnel, real world testing, whatever the case may be. And sometimes that combination of the tread pattern, the casing that you've chosen, the compound that you're using or compounds that you're using, along with whatever other technology, whether it be puncture protection or sidewall protection, just works. And you can see this with tire companies and actually component companies in general throughout cycling history as far back as you want to go. There's been a company that hit on something. I'll use Paneracer as an example. Timing and the product was perfect for the smoke and dart. And it helped really launch into the mainstream the ability to get a tire that people really liked for mountain biking in general. You look at a product, I would say, maybe in the roadside, like a Continental Grand Prix, which is you know, just impossible to really compete against just because it has such a vaunted reputation, deservedly in many cases, in, in the cycling community. You look at uh, you know, a couple mountain bike tires from Maxxis, same thing whether it be the high roller or something like that, they just nailed it. Right. And companies go through this cycle, all right? They're on top for a while, and then you know they continue to try to innovate, but it just becomes difficult, and not everybody can always you know maintain that. So what makes everybody is, I, different is when they see the opportunities, I think, in the marketplace and how they combine the products that they, or the, I should say, raw materials that they have that are available to them, and you know what it means to the specific market that they're really trying to target. There's kind of a lot to unpack there because it isn't all just <laughs> technologically focused, but that's, I think, what most tire companies, if they were being honest and component companies were being honest, would tell you is, is what they try to strive for. Yeah. I mean, it seems like sometimes it's, it's a little bit of luck in capturing that zeitgeist of the moment, which I feel like to some extent, and I'm curious your opinion on this, Panaracer kind of got that with gravel. You know, the Gravel King was sort of the tire for a long time. And that whole series, I'm like clicking over your website now, but you, you have a lot of different Gravel King variations, a lot of colors. And it seems like that one sort of was it for you. And Panaracer, in my mind anyway, became known as kind of, you know, like gravel. Like if I thought of Panaracer, my mind would immediately go to Gravel King. And, you know, like not road, not mountain. How is that category doing for you? And what's the what's the evolution? How did that come about? Well, Paneracer is a smaller company than many people might think that it is. I think that we we have a, a larger image in some respects than the company is. So we really try to focus on those areas that might be up and coming and not try to necessarily go head to head with market leaders specifically, at least not at every turn, because we just don't have the resources to do so and the timing just may not be right on it. I started to to hear about gravel back in 2012 as a as a specific category 
gravel bikes, just like mountain bikes, I mean, you can trace them back to the turn of the previous century, right? The 1880s, 1890s. There's an argument there's what was already gravel bikes. There's already you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I think that that's true. And and many of us that grew up with Schwinn Varsities or whatever, or whatever, you know, BMX bikes in the, in, in the 80s, those were gravel bikes too, because we just took them everywhere. We just didn't have specific componentry that was geared necessarily towards that. Or so marketing. <laughs> in Sorry? I said or marketing. <laughs> or marketing. And that is another aspect of it for sure. So it intrigued me because the road market was really strong at that time. And mountain bike, the mountain bike market was very stagnant back, you know, eight or nine years ago. And this seemed to embody the type of riding that most of us would really like to do all the time, which is kind of carefree, not have to worry about traffic or necessarily transport our bikes somewhere in order to do the riding, or it's only a specific kind of riding. It was kind of just get on your bike. And if you wanted to stay on the road, you could stay on the road. If you wanted to go on to something that was a little rougher, you had the confidence to do so. And if you wanted to do something even crazier, you know, as a as an adult and not a kid, <laughs> you didn't have the same kind of, of caution going off in your mind as you as you as you wouldn't have had when you were a kid. So we developed the original Slick Gravel King that was really just kind of a combination of what we were doing on the touring side, which Panaracer has always been very quietly, immensely successful at with our Pacella tires and some of the other touring tires that we've done. And we just looked at the category and tried to figure out, you know, what we would do. And you're right, the timing was really very good. Um, I can't say that it was all luck because we worked really hard at the category. And we saw that it was really taking off and because we have contacts in so many different parts of the country and so many different parts of the world, you know, we were able to hear that this was starting to become a thing. People were getting together doing it and the slick was good, but now you, you know, you needed something that was going to bite a little bit more. And then all these events slash races started to happen. And, you know, it just, it just boomed. And we took advantage of that by being one of the first, possibly the first specifically gravel tire in the category but certainly the one that, that took the bull by the horns and created the category. And you need to have a lot of different models, not models, but sizes within the models to really satisfy everyone's desire right now. And we see the category continuing to morph from, you know, maybe taking this little road that you never took on your road bike before to, hey, I'm going to go out on my gravel bike for two or three days, a week, maybe a month. And seeing what's happened both with tires and other componentry, including frames, you know, to get to where this area is right now. I, I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, like, I'm trying to think. I don't have a specific event in mind. I mean, Kanza, which you're changing its name and stuff, but that event, which is kind of legendary in the gravel space, for some reason, I seem to think your tires are associated with that. Maybe, maybe with sponsorship, maybe not, but it's just that sort of like, big long ride that's what i envision with yours and a tire that kind of needs to be able to handle a lot of distance and a lot of potentially really crummy conditions yeah i guess that's not even a question it's really just sort of a weird rambling observation but so for gravel you know like how do you as a brand how do you maintain that sort of position because obviously once a category takes off everybody jumps into it and you know every tire brand now has a collection of gravel tires What's Panaracer doing to kind of maintain that premium position there? Well, we continue to look at ways to refine 
the Gravel King lineup. Last year, we introduced the semi-slick version. We had the fully slick version, we had the semi-knob version, and now we have a semi-slick version that addresses, I think, most of the terrain that you're going to find, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, for gravel riding. And the ability to pick and choose based on that I think has helped keep maintain Panaracer's position along with our commitment to the gravel community in general. We are actively involved in, a, in over 30 events in the United States, ranging from quite large to very grassroots. We're a big believer in grassroots as we are in, in the events. We support not only racing, but the events themselves and getting people out riding because Gravel has put a smile on a lot of people's faces that uh, road riding isn't quite able to do for a variety of reasons, especially for newcomers. There's a steeper entry to mountain biking in a lot of cases, depending on it, where gravel is, again, throw your leg over and gravel's kind of whatever you want it to be. It can be your neighborhood greenway and it can be the Flint Hills of Kansas. It can be the Rocky Mountains. It can be the Swiss Alps. It can be all of these kinds of things. So that, you know, makes it really something that we want to continue to reach out to, you know, with people. And, and the community has really reached back to us. They not only appreciate, you know, the support, but that we listen to them and that we champion them in telling their stories, whether they're first timers or whether they're road riders coming over into gravel and just about everything in between. And people like to feel a part of that community. It's very important to them. So where are you soliciting product feedback to help fuel the development of like, let's just say, you know, like the full slick or the AC, I'm guessing maybe all conditions. It looks like it's a little more aggressive knobs. Like who's, are you relying on sponsored pros to give you that feedback? Do you have like feedback forms on your website? How do you figure out what you need to add next? Well, we've been working with a, a core group of testers for the various categories for some years now. And we've increased that number with the, with the gravel side. And we get a tremendous amount of feedback from around the world on what's needed on specific conditions. We look at what we're being asked for in, in social media. Not that either one dictates what it is that we do, but if you can try to bring the two together somehow, then there's a decent chance that you might have success with the tire. Maybe not worldwide, but in specific areas. And we've just launched an ambassador program for the United States only right now, which is really trying to tie in the people that feel the closest with Panaracer and want to really represent the brand to show us not only how they ride, but it's the possibility of using them in testing too. But that goes more towards community and how we like to share what people are doing and where it is that they're riding, because all of these things can give us ideas of where Gravel King or where Gravel or different categories may be going next. Right. I want to kind of transition to mountain bike a little bit because, you know, you guys do have a relatively recent fresh line of mountain bike tires. You know, it's only been over the past few years that you sort of rebooted that category in my mind. I mean, I remember talking to you at some of the trade shows as you're releasing the Romero and some of these other ones. And it seems like a very, very hard category to make an impression on unless you're just going to throw an insane amount of money at one of the top athletes. And in particular, one of the sexier categories like enduro, where you are able to capture, you know, just sick action shots, right? Like I don't, I don't see a lot of people throwing money at cross country or at least not making the same splash out of it as they do with enduro and downhill. But like, 
how do you even begin to break into that other than, you know, hopefully making really good tires? Well, that's a really, really good question. And I will try to keep it as short as I can to not only not bore you, but the listeners on this. It has been a very difficult category for us to get back into because of the dominance of the current market leaders. And again, there's good reason that they are leading the market. We are not able to throw money, nor do we feel that we have to throw a ton of money at at top racers. We continue to have an excellent relationship with Cedric Gracia, who's provided a tremendous amount of support for us, both in product development, product testing, and of course, his outreach. Having hundreds of thousands of followers on social media, you know, doesn't mean that your product's going to be successful, but there's a launch pad in some respects, right, from a marketing standpoint. We've also been working with people that we have uh, agreements with that we can't name, but you would know them if I talked to you off the record on for sure. They're helping us develop, but not necessarily going to be the face of mountain bike tires. We've asked for and, and are working with uh, Darren Stockton, who has been involved in in other tire companies in the past, who I've known through those endeavors and also because of his brother, Kurt, and their racing prowess who helped develop, uh, I should say Darren helped develop the Aliso and the Romero. And this, I would hope, would give us some cachet, not that Darren's name is going to be one that translates necessarily into marketing as much as we're trying to do the research and development to come up with something that builds upon what is already out there that might be a next step or a viable alternative to what's on the market currently. And that's all that we can do is try to build that steadily and slowly. We're not going to have the explosion that we saw on gravel, but we would take the same type of approach to it in developing the best product that we can, getting it to the right people, pushing it out into the market as much as, as possible and supporting it in any way that we can. Right. So this is, I guess, more of an opinion question, but I'm looking at your mountain bike page website right now. And miraculously, everything that you offer in mountain bikes fits on one screen. I don't have to scroll to see everything you offer, which is actually a bit of a compliment because when I look at, you know, some of the bigger mountain bike brands, I'll just name a few, you know, Kindamax's Schwalbe, right? Like they just, they have a lot and they make great tires, but they have so many that sometimes it's almost overwhelming trying to figure out which I actually need when there's like four different tires that would work well for cross country, right? Like, how do you even pick? Do you find that having that limited stock makes it easier for people to buy a pan eraser? Or are they looking at that and they're like, oh, these guys aren't even trying because they don't have 30 different options for me? I think it works both ways, depending on you know what medicine the consumer or the, or the people looking at it have, have decided to take. Some people are firmly in the, I need you know 10 different options per tire size category. And others are like, just tell me what I need to do the kind of riding that I want. And we take more of the approach, uh, the latter approach on that for a couple of different reasons. Is One, primarily, is that we don't feel that our line warrants having six different compounds and one different tread design currently because we're trying to sell tires or work on tires that are going to work in a variety of conditions. And two, I don't know how many of those are really needed. I guess you could look at it in a car analogy. You can, you know, you can buy a nice car for, Twenty twenty five thousand dollars. It can be a Mercedes. Nice is relative, right? Or you can buy an AMG for you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They're both <laughs> Mercedes, right? And they appeal to different 
categories. And I think that these 30 different styles of tires or whatever are similar to that, where you can really have, you know, an entry level where you, you can, you can say that you're riding this tire because it's cool and you're hip and you, but you bought it for 20 bucks because all it is is the same tire and design. It doesn't have the same compounds. It doesn't have the same casings or beads or any of the bells and whistles that you're going to find on the $90 tire, right? But some people that doesn't matter and other people that matters a lot. Yeah, or maybe they don't understand too. Like there's, yeah. I mean, I'm fairly well versed in the construction and tech of a tire and I get confused on sometimes because I think it comes down to just the language they use, right? Like it's, they all have different casings, but there's not sometimes if we were a clear description of what the benefits are of one versus the other. And you just, I think people just assume the more expensive ones must be better. You're right there, Tyler. And it is, you know, agreed. Even me being in the tire business can be a little bit confusing because some of the tech remains the same, even though it's been renamed. And, you know, it ends up kind of confusing people because as companies in all categories, tires and not, release new product, oftentimes it can be rebranded. I'm not saying it always is or that everybody does it, but, you know, can be somewhat rebranded you know, where you've renamed tech or you've tweaked something just a little bit, but there's all this product from the past that's still in the marketplace that's confusing the issue. We try to really keep it as clean as possible that way. Yes, there are certain categories that we do have a lot of tires in, like Gravel King and like Pacella, but that isn't dictated by tech or necessarily different price points. There are a couple different price points, but uh, it's, it's more by price point and what it is that you need to ride rather than the latest and greatest tech. Right. You know, I probably should have started with this, but let's talk about you for a second. Your title is global go-to guy for Panaracer. So what does that mean? Like, what do you actually do for Panaracer besides deal with us media folk? Well, um, I've been with the company since 1997. So it's wow. been a while. And my role has both remained the same and changed as it's needed to as the sole Western worker for the company you know, for employee for the company, I've been asked to do a lot of different things, hence the title that was eventually settled on as global go-to guy. <laughs> as much as it is tongue-in-cheek, it also means that I work in sales, but I don't. I'm not directly responsible for them. Uh, I am responsible for marketing. I am responsible for product development. I'm responsible for for distributor communications and liaison being a liaison with, with distributors in Europe and in North America. I work Asia when needed just because sometimes uh, English is easier for people. So I've been very fortunate from that respect. So whatever the company has needed me to do negates the title of you know manager specifically or, or product developer or marketing. It's just kind of all in one. So I do whatever they need me to do. <laughs> right on. So you're literally the only employee in uh, North America then? Outside of Japan. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I imagine that's a big market to deal with. <laughs> it is. It's a big responsibility that I, I honestly relish. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have the kind of responsibility and position that I do. And obviously it's working for both of us if we're still here after 24 years together. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, okay. I want to wrap up with maybe hopefully peering into the future a little bit. What's what can you tell me that's coming down the road from Panaracer that might either surprise or delight our listeners? Well, touching upon the categories that we talked about before, there will be an all-new road lineup, including road tubeless compatible tires for 2022 that will probably be introduced to everybody towards the end of this year, uh, Sweet. at least in the fourth quarter. 
The reason that you don't see a bigger push on mountain bike tires this year is that literally all of our production has gone to OEM just because of the way that manufacturing is right now. So there'll be a, a renewed level of education for the mountain bike tires in 2022. And you'll see a few new sizes that we feel that we needed to round out in the Gravel King category. Awesome. So that's what you can expect to see from us. Very cool, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I do too, Tyler. Thanks for having me. If you haven't seen them, Panaracer continually offers limited edition colors in their gravel tires, and they're always updating the sizing options to meet modern riders' needs on those glorious dirt roads we're all loving so much right now. Just search Panaracer on bikeroomer.com to see all their latest treads, colors, and designs. If you like this and want more great interviews with cycling industry experts and the most interesting brands, hit subscribe to the Bike Rumor podcast on your favorite player. For a full list of all of our interviews and show notes on this and every other episode, head to bikerumor.com slash podcast. Thanks a ton for listening. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.